So last week, and like we said, Pastor Jerome encouraged us to kind of step away from fear and into courage. He encouraged us over the, the course of three days. That's really what I was talking about, is stepping out into who God wants you to be and letting go of that fear. Because how many know sometimes when you hear the, the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit in one ear, you hear something else in the other, and the fear starts to well up. And the truth is, is that God has something for each and every one of us in this room, and we have to make choices. We have to step out. We have to uh, press back against whatever's trying to hold us back. I know for me, I hear it all the time because I'll be at a, at a getting gas, and I'll hear God telling me to go in and minister to that, to that person at the register. And all of a sudden, all the stuff goes in my head. What if they reject me? What if the people in line behind me say something? And, and, and man, the list gets long. You know, what if they start cussing and yelling and they're throwing me out? None of this stuff has ever happened to me, not even once. But that's always what goes through my head because the fear begins to, to well up. Yeah, even the pastor feels that. If you feel that, you're not alone. We all deal with that. But the thing is, is that I want to get to a place where God intends me to be. And I want this church to get to a place where God intends it to be. To continue to grow, to do what God has called us to do. And I want that to be according to biblical principles and to biblical truths. We don't just get to pick how we serve God. God has called us to do these things. And we need to do it according to his plan, according to his will. And like he wants us to do it. The truth is, is that if we try to do it our way and it's not aligned with the, the, the will of God, it's destined to fail. The truth is, even if it looks successful on the outside, it's still destined to fail because we're called to reach people for Jesus to make a difference. And I, I pray that we don't ever get stuck in a rut doing the same old things over and over. My phone? I know. This thing is supposed to be on silent. I have a, a program on here that actually shuts it off during service. It's scheduled. Apparently it's not working. Hallelujah. Praise God. You'll forgive me. Uh, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. I don't want to get stuck in a rut as a church. Like I said, doing the same things over and over, not getting any different results. And uh, I'm so thankful the Bible says that if any of you lacks wisdom, ask, and he will give it to you generously and without reproach. Which is a good thing, because if you could see my prayer life, it's always asking God to give me wisdom. Because you guys may look over here at me and think, that I got it all figured out. I don't. And I need wisdom from God all the time. Because I want to make sure that I'm doing it the right way. I don't want to be doing something where I'm just spinning my wheels. We're a young church. We've been in this building not even four years. And uh, I just want to make sure that we're doing things the way God wants us to do them. I want to be effective for Him. I don't want to get to heaven one day and he says, I asked you to do this. Why didn't you do it? And I certainly don't want to find out that somebody else had to do the job that God called me to do. I want to do it his way. So today we're going to take a look. I've entitled the message by their example because we're going to once again look in the book of Acts and really look at the early church, how they were doing things, what they were doing. The thing is, is that we can learn from the early church by their example, by the things that they did. And here's the deal. 
Times have changed. That happened 2,000 years ago. But you know, people haven't changed in 2,000 years. You can read the book of 1 Corinthians and look at what was happening in their city, in their town, and go, wow, that looks a lot like what's happening in the U.S. right now because people don't change. The same sin, the same stuff has been, we've been getting into people since the very beginning. Technology changes too. You might not have noticed that, but it does. And man, it is changing fast right now. And you think about it, the technology that we have, it makes it wonderful to be a Christian. Man, I, I've been watching a lot of, uh, I think his name is, is Chris Turk or Steve Turk. I forget his first name. Is it Steve? He's a, he's a, a, a guy that basically uh, has his, his uh, doctorate in, in apologetics. And he lays out the evidence for, for Christianity. And he has a bunch of different things, but he, he lays out the evidence that there has to be a God. And it's, and it's not stuff like, uh, well, because the Bible says so. Now, how many of you know that, that uh, uh, Jesus told us that you, when he was talking to Thomas, he says, you see the, the wounds and you believe. Blessed are those who don't see and they still believe. But it doesn't mean there's not evidence out there. It doesn't mean your faith should never be based on the evidence, but it should certainly encourage and strengthen your faith. Because we still have to, to put our trust in him. Matter of fact, that's the problem the demons have, right? Because it says the demons believe and they shudder, but they don't have their faith placed in Jesus, in their God. They know he's real. They have no doubt. They all saw him at one point before they were cast down. And that's the thing is that, that we live in a world now, and if you want to know where the evidence is for God, just put in Turk's name on YouTube, and you can watch his lectures. And he lays it out from a scientific standpoint. Um, he talks about there has to be truth. There has to be a God. He looks at all these reasons and all this evidence that demonstrates that. You know what? Ten years ago, there'd be no way for you to know that unless you went to a college and you paid the money and you, and you were fortunate enough to get to somebody teaching this stuff. But we have this information and everything at our fingertips. Because technology has changed. But you know what hasn't? People and then their need for a Savior. The biblical foundation, the foundational principles of reaching the lost and building Christ's church do not change no matter what the underlying infrastructure that we have. Matter of fact, it should make it easier for us. Because right now, you guys all know that I, I preach from a, from a tablet. I have... I do all my Bible reading on a tablet. The program I use is Olive Tree. I love it. It does highlighting and notes. It's everything that I want. And I have any Bible translation that I want at my fingertips. On my computer at home, I have books and commentaries and, and any Bible that I want at my fingertips. You know how amazing that is? That we have access to that knowledge? But that doesn't change anything. We still need to share it with others. And we can still learn from how the early church did things because there's principles and foundations that the church is built on no matter what time no matter what technology amen let's go ahead and bow our head as we look into god's word heavenly father we thank you for this day father i thank you as we look at your word today that we would be encouraged father that we would be strengthened lord as your word says uh, if any of us lacks wisdom that we would ask for it and you give generously without brooks father give us wisdom as we move forward and how to better apply your principles, your truths in our lives so that we can be effective at reaching this city for the kingdom of heaven. Father, I pray that you would 
prepare our hearts this morning to receive what you have for us so that we would come out of here different, that it wouldn't get stolen away, it wouldn't get crowded out, but Father, that we would be challenged to live fully for you, Father, and that your word would produce fruit in our heart. And we just thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the book of Acts continues where Luke left off. If you want to, if you didn't know that, the book of Acts and and the book of Luke were written both by Luke. He was a, a doctor, and really many people consider him one of the most accurate ancient historians because as they keep, uh, comparing what they find and what they dig up in the desert and all the stuff they learn about history, they're finding that, that everything that he said, even the stuff that they thought was wrong, is actually true. This guy was an accurate historian. And what he's doing here is he's recapping the end of Luke here. And this is after Jesus' resurrection, but prior to his ascension. So if you guys don't know, when, when Jesus rose from the dead after three days being in the grave, he stayed on the earth for another 40 days before he ascended to heaven. And he spoke with the disciples. This is actually Jesus speaking to the disciples. And he tells them to wait for the promise. And this promise that he is referring to is the Holy Spirit. More specifically, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Because uh, it's not something I'll go too deep in today, but you can look. When Jesus came, he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So they'd already received the Holy Spirit unto salvation already. They had been made brand new. But he says, Wait for power up above. And that's when the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes. So first you receive the Holy Spirit in you. But subsequent to salvation, you should be receiving the Holy Spirit upon you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's when he said you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus said, that we need this power, that we're going to receive this power. The early church required this power from the Holy Spirit to be successful. It required the gifts of the Spirit. That's why we see the gifts of the Spirit speaking in other tongues, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, the interpretation of tongues, supernatural faith. These are all gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the early church required them to be successful. That's why he sent them. He said, you will Receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. They received this power so they could effectively be witnesses for Christ. And we're going to look today and see that actually when they operated in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this power gave them the ability to make an impact greater than they could on their own with the people that they were ministering to. For the early church, operating in the Holy Spirit was not a luxury. It was a requirement. And it led to people being saved. It led to the church being built up. Actually, the gifts of the Spirit are to build and edify the church. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 14.12. He says, so within yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building the church. 
we have a responsibility to help build and edify the church and the people that are in the church. So the question we have to ask ourselves then, are we really any different from the early church? And I say that we're not. Times have changed. Technology has changed. But we're no different from the early church because we are all still called to be witnesses to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, when it talks about this, he's not talking about we were only supposed to witness to these three things here, to only Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. I guess this one, to the end of the earth, applies to all of us. Because the end of the earth for them is the end of the earth for us. That means everywhere. But he says, hey guys, you're supposed to witness in Jerusalem. What was Jerusalem to the apostles, to his people? That was their hometown. We have a responsibility to witness here in the city of Marana, to share the gospel with people in the city of Marana. Get to know your neighbors. Get to know the people down the street. And I'm not telling you to go beat them with the Bible. That's not effective. But how about you make a relationship with them and begin to share with them what God has done for you and look for that opportunity to minister to them. And then he says, also, not just your hometown, but in all Judea and Samaria. That's the region that they were in. That would be like us saying, you know what, go out and witness to the people in the city of Marana. But not just in the city of Marana. I want you to witness to the people in the surrounding areas, in Tucson, in Phoenix, but not just that also, the whole state of Arizona, and not just that, but even our, the country of the United States. And he says, but, not just that, and to the end of the earth. Make no mistake, church, we're called to witness to everybody everywhere. Matter of fact, that's when Jesus will come, when he will come back, is when every people everywhere have heard the gospel and had an opportunity. They say that every generation has had enough manpower and resources to reach the entire earth of the gospel, but none of us have ever done it. How about we be the generation to do it, to step out? Because that's the thing. When I ask, are we any different than the early church? Does the church need, still need to grow? Does the church still need to be edified and built up? And we have the same requirements that they had. And if they needed power to do these things, then so do we. Church, I would encourage you. Because as with them, and it is with us the same, it's not some closely guarded secret. Operating, receiving the Holy Spirit and operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit is not a closely guarded privilege. There's not a subset of people that do these things. The Bible says earnestly desire the greater gifts. Or to desire to operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because it's not a privilege, it's not a luxury, but it's, a, it's a, a necessity for all believers to operate to the capacity that God wants them to operate. Because the power of the Holy Spirit allows ordinary people to do extraordinary things for His kingdom. Amen? I would encourage you, church, if you haven't received the gift of the Holy Spirit, I would love to pray with you to receive it. Because it is for you. It's for everyone in this room. Paul said, if you were a father and your son asked you for bread, would you give him a rock? Nobody would do that. But instead, he said, if that's how you as earthly fathers will treat your earthly kids, how do you think your heavenly father will treat you if you ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit? He's going to give it. Amen? In Acts 2, verse 42, it says, 
Another area I want to look at the early church, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It says they were devoted. To be devoted means to be zealous or ardent in attachment, loyalty, or affection. We all know what devoted means. Even if you couldn't give me the def- definition, you, you, could exp- you know what it means to be devoted to something. And that's what we're called to do. It says they were devoted. It says they were, another way to say it is they were zealous for the apostles' teaching. How many of you are devoted and zealous to God's word? How many of you have evidence in your life of that? Could you prove it? One of the, the funniest things I've heard is if, the, if being a Christian was illegal, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? That's something to think about. But it says the apostles, they were, they, they were zealous for the apostles' teaching. Why were they zealous? Why were they devoted to these things? Because they understood that those teachings brought life. Because the life was, was transferred by learning the word of God. Their faith was increased. The stuff that the apostles were teaching wasn't the same old stuff. It wasn't like sitting in the, uh, under some Greek philosopher where the words had no power and had no meaning and no power to change. Even the Old Testament struggled in that area. Because even though there was the law and they knew what they were supposed to do, that's what Paul said. He said, I, I know the law, I agree with the law, but I can't do it because sin has a hold of me. It wasn't until Jesus came and the law was fulfilled and his new life inside of us enabled us to finally live the life that God called us to live because we were finally set free. We were made brand new. That's not what the other people were teaching. There was no power in what the other people were teaching. There's power in the name of Jesus. This was new. This was life-changing. And it was making a difference. And you've got to think, this, all this teaching was countercultural. You know, you look at society today, you would think that Christians hate all women. If you listen to what they'll tell you on the news, that Christians hate women, we only care about white men. If you're not a white man, you're not, which is interesting because Christians didn't start out as white men. But if you look, Christians have done more from the days of the New Testament for women than any other group has ever done. It was revolutionary for them to say, no, we're all equal. Women, men. Slave, Gentile, Jew, we're all equal. That was revolutionary. This is new stuff. And they weren't just jaded or going with the flow. So many people in the United States are involved in churches because it's what they've always done. They're, they're cultural Christians. They're not real Christians. There's a video that I once watched many years ago of Chinese believers receiving the Bible. And they brought in this big pallet of the Bible. And these Chinese new believers, they were fighting for it. They all wanted to have their copy. And when they got it, they were in tears. And it was this amazing thing that I saw because I don't ever see that in the church. Most of us are willing to, to miss church, miss spending time on the Word because we got a cold or a slight headache. But these people, they were fighting over the Word of God because they knew it had power. And it was that they were in tears because they were so excited for what they had. That's the thing. In the United States, it's a cultural tagline instead of an actual devotion to his word. What kind of impact do you think we would have on this world if Christians actually showed the same devotion or zealousness for the word of God 
as they did in the early church. People realize that you actually believe what you said you do instead of saying, hey, I went to church this Sunday and then you live like the devil the rest of the week. And I'm not talking about being weird. I'm talking about just being passionate about the Word of God, living it out in your life. One of the... uh, has anybody ever watched Arrow, the show Arrow? Anybody's ever watched Arrow? You've watched Arrow? Or what about Suits? Well, anyway, there's, I don't remember his name. It's not, the show's not important. I was trying to point out the actor. There's a name, uh, the actor in Arrow, his name is Damien Dark. He's uh, Cahill in Suits. And he's, uh, you've probably seen him before because he's, he's kind of a, an interesting looking man. He's got pretty much uh, like, platinum blonde hair naturally and he's got these really light blue eyes he's an interesting looking man but i what i loved about him and he always plays a bad guy which is interesting or most of the time plays a bad guy and he plays a very good bad guy too but one of the things i found out about him was that he was a christian and he uh he was asked uh, one of his stances is he won't kiss another woman in 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 acting he just he won't do it he doesn't do sex scenes he doesn't do any of those so he won't even kiss a woman that is not his wife in these movies, and I, I, he's made him one of my favorite actors just because of his personal stance on his convictions. Because he's living the life that he. When people ask him, "Oh, you're a Christian, but why do you do this stuff?" Matter of fact, they've even asked him, "Well, if you're a Christian, how how do you how do you you know tell your kids um, that you're doing this uh, the, this this awful stuff? You know, you're the bad guy, you're killing, and all this stuff. But you but you won't kiss another woman." He said, "You know, the thing about acting is is that when we're when we're, we're killing somebody or doing something in a movie, they're not actually dying. It's all pretend. So, but you can't pretend to kiss someone. And I love that he stands for what he believes, and no one doubts. As a matter of fact, he says that there's been many times he's been passed over for, for positions. He's lost a lot of work because he stood for his convictions. Mike Pence is another one. We're living in a society now where they, they made fun of him that he wouldn't have dinner with another woman without his wife there. Yet we're going through a Me Too movement right now where every single man is being called to question, and rightly so, if they're doing these things, rightly so. But then they laugh at him for putting stuff in place that not only could he not be falsely accused, but that he could never succumb to any kind of temptation. There's no opportunity. They make fun of him, but then they want to, when stuff does happen, they pull people over the coals. But I love that he stands up and says, no, I'm a Christian. I believe this, and this is how I'm going to live my life. I don't think that's weird. I would say that's being zealously devoted to the teachings of Christ. You know, if Christians could just show the same passion for the gospel as they showed for their favorite sports team, I think we'd be doing pretty good. He goes on to say that they were also devoted to breaking of bread. That just means they got together and ate. It's one of the things that was really a big focus of this church when we first started. We used to have lunch right afterwards. I put on like 30 pounds in two years because we were devoted to breaking of bread. (laughs) Hallelujah. But the thing is, it's not about the food. It's about getting together and getting to know one another, being a family. That's why we're called Living Hope Family Church because we're a family. And that means a couple of things when you're a family. One, it means you actually get together. You get to know one another. And I want to tell you right now, as I, I look out, I'm seeing more couples and more, uh, uh, not just couples, but people getting together with one another than we've ever had since we started this church. And it blesses my heart so much to see that people are developing relationships and not just seeing each other on Sunday morning, but actually getting involved with one another. 
Because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to get together. Be devoted to being a family. So one of that means we get together. You know what else being a family means? How many of you guys got siblings? There is nobody in my life that can make me matter than my sister. Except maybe Jen. Jen maybe, but my sister is the other one that really. <laughs> nobody makes me matter than my sister, but I love her to death and I would be there for any moment. And no matter what she's done, what slight she's done to me or or really, if we're being honest, I've probably been way worse to her. She still loves me, and we're still there for one another. Because people let you down. But when you're in a family, you work through it. The question is, how, not how are we going to, to get back at one another, or what are we going to do with this, uh, what you've done to me or what I've done to you, but it's what are we going to do after that? Because the truth is, the people in this room are going to tick you off from time to time. I'm probably going to tick you off from time to time. So do we, what do we do? Do we move on or do we, we just quit? Or do we reconcile and press on because we're a family? And it says they were also devoted to the prayers. If we want to be a successful church and successful as individuals, we need to spend more time praying. That's one of the things that hasn't grown in this church that breaks my heart is that I don't see but the same people every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock in that prayer room. There's usually a handful of us that are there every single Sunday and they're devoted to it. But church, we have to pray together. We have to stand together. And when we get in there together corporately, we come before God standing in agreement with one another. It's not about browbeating God. It's not like if I could just get three more people, then God would have to say yes. The truth is, is one person can be just as effective at prayer as an entire group, but we should be standing together in agreement with one another for this city, for one another, for lifting each other up, for lifting this church up so that it will do, praying that it will accomplish what God wants it to accomplish, praying for our government, praying for the, the city government, praying for the people that just live here that need Jesus. Church, we need to be meeting together and praying. Then in Acts 3, 1 through 6, it says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The night, Look, they had prayer meetings. It's not something we, met, we made up. It says, Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. They did it every single day. I'm just asking you to be here. Look, the ninth hour, 9 a.m. It's, it's a sign. <laughs> I don't even know when the ninth hour is. It may not even be 9 o'clock back then. Anyway. But they, they did. They met every day to pray because it was important to the early church. And it says that a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth rise up and walk. See, we just read the early church prayed, and now they're getting ready to head to prayer. And uh, one of the things that accompanied the members of the early church was healing, miracles, the power of God. They laid hands on people and they were healed. They told this guy, look, you want money. You want something from us. You think that money's going to change your life, but money's not going to do anything. 
But what I have to you, I give to you. Get off your feet and walk. And this guy, he believed. And he jumped up. He leaps up. Can you imagine? He's never walked his entire life. And he says, all right, I'm going to go for it. And he jumps onto his feet. And that's the thing is when the apostles went and laid hands on people, they didn't do it in pretense. It wasn't just something that looked good. They believed that God was going to move. They believed that when they laid their hands on somebody that this person's life was going to be changed. Do we pray with the same conviction? Do we lay hands on with the same conviction? Do we have the same full confidence in God that they had? And you say, well, Pastor Wayne, they lived with Jesus. It must have been easier for them. Tell that to Peter. He walked with Jesus every single day, and he denied him three times as soon as he went to the cross. I don't think it was any easier for the early church. Matter of fact, it should be easier for us because we have more documented evidence, one, through the, through the Bible, of miracles and examples of the power of God working. But also all throughout history, you'll, you'll see it all the time. It doesn't take that long to, to read about miracles of healing, even documented cases of people rising from the dead. The supernatural is real, but we're so trained in this country that it's not. That science is everything. But they believed when they prayed. And God heard them. And that whatever they, they asked according to His will it would be done. And it happened time and time again. And we look at this, well, 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 is healing according to God's will? Yes, we actually spent four weeks on talking about healing not too long ago. Is deliverance according to God's will? Absolutely. It's provision according to God's will, without a doubt. I'm not saying God wants everyone to be rich. That would kill some of you. It literally would. If you can't handle a little bit of money, what do you think you're going to do with a ton? That's why so many people that win the lottery end up bankrupt again or end up addicted to drugs and doing all kinds of stupid things. One of the things Joseph mentioned today is that the blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow to it. Those people that won the lottery, was that a blessing? I would say it was a curse because it destroyed their lives. Money doesn't always mean blessing. But provision, that is the will of God, that you would be taken care of, that you would be clothed, that you would be fed, that you would have everything that you need. Not everything that you want, but everything that you need. So when we pray for people for that, that is according to us. We should expect it to happen. Sometimes I think that when we're praying, we should be going, God, why hasn't this happened yet? Your word says that if I land on the sick, they will recover. God, your word says that if I trust you, that I'll have enough for everything. Because the thing is, is that God is watching over his word, ready to perform it. We shouldn't be surprised when God does a miracle in our life. We should be surprised when it doesn't happen. That should be what shocks us. Because God is faithful and he is watching over his word. So we should be asking what happened. But they believed that when they spoke, mountains would move. Guy at the gate, he just wanted money. But he offered him something more. Something life-changing. He offered him hope. Wholeness. They offered life. Tell you what, that is so much worth so much more than a few dollars in the bank. And this wasn't something that happened occasionally. In Acts 5, 12 through 16, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, 
And so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. It's always an interesting one to me. We see Peter and his shadows touching people, and, and uh, they were getting well. And I want you to know, church, Peter's shadow wasn't magical. The thing was is that everywhere the disciples went, everywhere the apostles went, Miracles were taking place, and people believed that so much. They were just like the woman who went up to Jesus. If I could just touch the hem of his garment. Jesus' garment didn't have any power. Jesus had power. Her faith in what Jesus could do had power. And the same with these people. It wasn't Peter's shadows, but the thing was is that miracles were so commonplace back then that people were doing anything that they could to get close to these men and to hear the, the word of God, to see what God would do in their lives. Why is it that we don't see miracles in the church right now? There's no reason that miracles shouldn't be following us. And the power of the Holy Spirit is not just for the apostles. It's for us today. When we lay hands on the sick, we should expect them to be healed. And when we minister the gospel to people and we share the gospel with them, we should expect them to be set free, not stay right where they're at. So that's the thing. is The gospel is not just about a, uh, uh, an eternal get-out-of-jail-free card. It's about a life that has changed. That's why, that's why James said, you show me your faith by your works, I'll show you, or, or, or without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Because there was a change in his life when he received the gospel. When Jesus came inside of him, something changed. People should be, just, should be blessed just by being around us. Do you remember Potiphar? Joseph? was a slave. Joseph's life is awful. We'll go through. I plan on preaching on Joseph's life here sometime in the future again, but that, that was a crazy thing, and Pastor Jerome talked about it briefly, but he was uh, thrown into slavery by his brothers, or sold into slavery. They were going to kill him, but uh, one of the brothers talked him into selling him into slavery, and then he gets took around. He gets taken to Potiphar's house, and he just works as under God. He's a slave. Can you imagine that? And he works as under God, and Potiphar was blessed just because Joseph was doing a good job. That should happen with us as well. The people around us should be doing better. That's why we pray for the businesses in this strip and the businesses around us because, you know, I pray that our blessing would overflow into their, into their businesses and make a difference. Numbers 10.29 says, And Moses said to Obab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do good to you, for the Lord promised good to Israel. People should be blessed just by being around you. That's what, that's what Moses says to his father. He says, you know what? Just come with us. They didn't serve Moses as God. He said, just come to us because the Lord promised good to us, and that will overflow into your life just by being around us. These kind of things should follow us wherever we go. And the church should be a place where the sick, the broken, the hurting, the disheartened, those who have damaged relationships or any other malady that you can think of, this should be the place where they should come and be able to get healing, to get rest, to, to feel like they're part of a family and feel the love of a family. The church should be a place where people are flocking to. But all too often, because we don't look like the early church, I don't think it happens all that much. I mean, what would it look like if every time someone came to this church with their hands on them, they were healed perfectly? What would it look like when people heard about that and the people would be flocking to come to this place? 
Why don't we see that now? Why don't we see that here? I think many of us live our lives as part-time Christians. And I'm not pointing the finger at anyone in this, at this room any more than I'm pointing it at myself because there's certainly areas in my life that I want to grow and improve in as well. But why don't we see healings all the time? And I praise God we have seen some in this church. God's touched people's lives. We've seen amazing things happen. We've had people that have had arthritis in their hands be cleared up because we lay hands on them. That should be the normal thing. We've had people that the doctors were telling them that they had lupus and we laid hands on them and they came in and turns out that they didn't. We have seen miracles, but why aren't we seeing more? In Acts 4, I'm running out of time. This wasn't supposed to take this long. Hallelujah. Acts 4, 17 through 21 says, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whatever it is and right, whatever is, it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. One of the things I think about is why are signs and wonders so important? Why did Jesus say they would follow those who believe? Because I think it opens doors for us to minister. And I realize that it's true that no signs and wonders are going to save anybody. People aren't going to get saved because we had a miracle happen here. But it opens a door for them to show up, that we can share the gospel with them. This is right after that uh, man that Peter uh, came to, and he says, you know, I don't have uh, money or gold, but what I have, I give to you. Stand up. So this is a few chapters later. Um, but what happened is, is, is the, the, the legal authorities at the time, they pulled them in and said, you need to stop doing this stuff. You need to stop preaching. You need to stop sharing this. And their response was, who should we listen to, man or God? So many of us have this idea in our head that, that uh, we can't press our moral views on somebody else. You know, there's this idea that, why, you know, you, you believe what you want, but don't press it on me. And I find that interesting in two ways. One, they're not my moral views. They're his. And two, man, if you really believe what you say you believe, if you believe that if you don't share the gospel with them, if they don't receive Jesus Christ and the Lord and Savior, that they're actually going to spend eternity away from God in torment. If you actually believe that, how could you not share it to them regardless of what they said? What if you say, hey, man, you shouldn't go be walking up and down the interstate like that. Or you shouldn't walk down the train tracks when there's a train coming. They say, you know what? You don't enforce what you think is right on top of me. Let me do whatever I want. Would you let them get hit by a train and would you do something about it? See, they were pressured and commanded to stop preaching, but their response was, should we listen to you or should we listen to God? And the truth was, is in this case, they couldn't even do anything to them because so many people were watching what the apostles were doing that they knew if they tried to do anything to hurt them, then they would be the ones under fire. You know, we have been careful of, of when we go out ministering the times that we've gone out knocking on doors and stuff. We're usually respective of people that say no soliciting and, and uh, you know, we don't want to 
We never want to do something that's going to cause people to push back from God rather than press in. But you know what? If every time we knocked on somebody's door, a miracle happened, you know how many people would want you to show up on the door? They would want you to be knocking? And I can't wait till Living Hope Family Church comes by again. Last time they came here, they blessed us so much. And we don't want other people knocking on our door, but they can knock. What if we looked like that? How can we? And that's the question. What are the things that we can do to make people want us to be a part of what they're doing? Pastor Jerome told a story of, of a, a church that had a big lit up cross on top of it. And they had done so much good in the city. They had done so much and made such an impact. One time when the lights went on on the cross, the local Buddhist leader came across and said, hey, you need to get your, 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 your uh, cross lit back up. It's like, what do you mean? You're a Buddhist. Why are you crazy? He's like, because when that's not lit up, there's something off in our city. And that was severely paraphrased and maybe even butchered. But he said that was the idea that the, <laughs> that the, the Buddhist guy was like, you have to get your cross lit back up because they made it such an impact in that city. In church, I recognize that we're a small church, but I believe that we can do mighty things for God. And as we continue to grow, we'll continue to make a bigger impact. One of the things that we've got in the works right now, we're trying to get a sign-up sheet for it, is we went and talked to uh, the elementary school up here and, and asked them, how can we help you? How can we serve you? And they've got, given us a list of the things that they would like us to do. We're finalizing it. We'll be putting out a sign-up for any of you that want to invest in that. But we want to be a place where they go, you can't have churches in school. to be like, you know what? They've done so much good for us. Come into our school. Let us have inroads into the, 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 so we can share the gospel. What if our reputation in this city were that every time Living Hope Family Church showed up, God moved? So what do we do to get there? One, it's going to take changes in the church. We're going to have to look more like them. We're going to need to devote time to prayer. We're going to need to devote time to, to meeting together and building our relationships. We're going to need to spend time uh, really just really understanding what the Word of God says. Some of you are wondering, oh, what's all this he's talking about, the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And, you know, I, I've heard about that stuff. Any of those people that speak in tongues, isn't that crazy? Well, let's, why don't we, we spend time in the Word and read what the Word says about it? Now, I'm all with you. It's weird, but it's not crazy. Anybody heard someone speaking in tongues? You're like, that sounds kind of weird, but it doesn't mean it's not biblical. We have to spend time in the Word devoted to it to understand what His Word says so that we can live it out in our lives. Corporately, we're going to have to make some changes to make sure that we're more invested in this community, making a difference. But individually, we all have to do that as well. You know, that's why we come to church and we read His Word and we hear the pastor preaching. It's not so we can be entertained, it's so we can grow and have a revelation of who God is and, more, and just as important as having a revelation of who you are in Him so that we can live the life God has called us to live. Church, and we're going to shoot forward a bunch here, and there's more I wanted to say, but we're running out of time. But in Acts 8, 4 through 8, I'll actually read this part in front of us. It says, Now Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The thing is, church, I believe that we need to make some changes. We need to, to, and something I want to be clear about. When I say we need to make changes, I'm not disparaging where we're at right now. Church, we've been making changes since the beginning. We've been growing. But if we ever stop growing, we're going to die. We're going to be less effective. So when I get up here and I'm preaching to you saying, we've got to make some changes, we've got to grow, I'm not saying that you're screwing up right now, that you're not in the right place right now. Because, church, I've watched you guys grow, and I'm so proud of everyone in this room as they've grown closer to him, and they're walking out in his life. But it doesn't mean we can ever stop moving and stop growing and stop doing more because we have so much to do for the kingdom of heaven. And we need to continue pressing on. We need to continue growing. We should all have a hunger inside of us to improve every single day to be more of what Jesus, because none of us have reached the stature of Jesus, right? And he's the plumb line because we're supposed to read the stature, be, be at the stature, stature and measure of Jesus Christ. Is that the right word? It sounds weird in my head. Is it stature, right? All right. Sorry. But we're, that, that's, our, that's our measurement. That's who we're supposed to live. And none of us are there yet. Paul said he hadn't attained it yet. If Paul hasn't attained it, I know we haven't attained it. So we're still growing towards something. Matter of fact, the Scripture says that that's where we're all going as we're pressing towards the unity of the faith. We all need to be at that point. But as we do that, as we grow, stuff is going to come against us. The early church was trying to get going, and Saul and, and all the, the, the religious leaders at the time, they were dragging Christians out of home. They were killing them. They were putting pressure against them. You remember Stephen, who started as a guy who was just feeding the widows, um, and then he, he grows, and he increases, and he ends up doing miracles and signs and wonders and preaching the gospel, and they killed him for it. Because he was moving forward, but opposition is always going to come against us when we try to do something for the kingdom of heaven. Don't be unaware of that stuff happening. I've talked to members in the church right now as they've said, you know what, we're going to get involved more, we're going to be there, and they begin to see it already. Sickness hits their household, stuff comes against them. I've seen it in my life hundreds of times. I've seen it in the life of the members of the church hundreds of times. Every time you move, make a step forward for the kingdom of heaven, there's an enemy that wants to push you back down. And the funny thing is, is the devil's going to try to use stuff to push you down, but the scripture says that everything works together for the good of those who are loved by God and are called according to his purpose. And this happened here, right? Great persecution came. A lot of it is because the, the disciples and the apostles wouldn't get off their butt and actually go preach like he said to. He said, go to, to Jerusalem, to, to uh, Judea and Samaria, and then he said, also go to the ends of the earth. They just stayed in Jerusalem. Then all of a sudden, persecution came. The enemy came against them. It was easy for them. They're all in one place. He starts going after them. And because of that, they all scattered and began preaching in other places. Now, I find it interesting because the enemy thought that he was going to kill them. He was going to stop Christianity dead in his tracks. And what he did actually caused it to grow even faster. Know that when the enemy comes against you, church, and he's going to, the, the more you make a decision to serve him, the more he's going to come against you. But know that no matter what the enemy does, if you continue to serve God, God will make a way that that will be a black eye in the devil's face. Amen. I mean, you see that with Jesus was the ultimate example of that. The devil's like, I got you dead to rights. I'm going to kill you. It's all going to be over. And it turns out that that's actually what God needed to make his plan work. And it happens over and over again. 
But we should learn from the mistakes of others so we don't have to get a gentle kick in the rear to do what God wants us to do. They wouldn't have had to face the persecution if they would have just left in the first place and did what they were called to do. Now, I'm not saying God, God did it as a punishment. God didn't send the persecution. That was the enemy. But if they weren't there, it couldn't have happened. And then continuing on in Acts 4-8, through 8, this is what it says. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Philip was one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Because one of the things that people will say, and I didn't have a lot of time, I had to skip a bunch of stuff, and I'm still going long, and I apologize, bear with me, but one of the things that people will say is, no, the gifts of the Spirit were just for the apostles. Signs and wonders and miracles were just for the apostles. And I say, really? Because there's a lot of evidence otherwise, and Philip is my favorite example of that. Philip, not an apostle. Philip was actually one of the ones that when the, 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 the apostles were supposed to, to deal with the feeding of the widows, they said, you know what? We can't be, we, we have to do what God called us to do, to teach and preach the word of God. So bring up, I think it was 12 men to go ahead and feed these widows. And they went and picked out these men to feed him. And Philip was one of them. And Philip said, he started just serving a bunch of widows that didn't have any food. If you want to be effective in the kingdom of heaven, you don't have to be a preacher. Sometimes you can just do the little things. And the great news is if you're faithful with little, then you'll be faithful with much, and God will raise you up. So he goes from, from a lowly uh, kitchen worker to going down here. It says he went about preaching. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And then with the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. He went from a, from a server to a preacher. And not only that, he was casting out demons and unclean spirits. He was healing the sick. The lame were walking. The paralyzed were walking. He was doing amazing things. Because the signs and wonders followed him. He was operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and in power, and he wasn't an apostle. He was just a guy that said yes. He said, what do you need me to do, Paul? I'll do whatever you need me to do. I need you to serve these widows. Those widows? Yeah, those. All right, I'll do it. And he did whatever he was asked to do because he had a servant's heart, and then God used him in a mighty way to impact an entire city. It says there was much joy in the city when men and women did what God called them to do. When we step out, church, we'll see an impact in this city like we've never imagined. If we'll do those things, let's look at the early church that devoted themselves to teaching, to prayer, to fellowship. We can do that. The technology looks different today. The way we do it looks different. I notice there's a little chilly in here this morning because we have air conditioning they didn't but the word's still being preached and we're going to continue to do that and make an impact in church i would encourage you to press in even further pastor wayne i've come so far i know you have but keep going you don't have to stop there keep pressing in, keep going and see what god will do through you to impact this city for his kingdom amen amen let's go ahead and bow our heads